0: Since I can remember, I hate you and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. Huh?
1: I
2: was mad of
3: hell and I'm not going
4: to break this anymore. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Did you telling me you
3: built a time
1: machine? What if a
2: Oh, sounds like somebody's got a case of the mundus.
3: <laughs> Hello there,
4: children. Hey, hey, kids. <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show,
0: Annie Goodman and Matthew Sachs. Woohoo!
3: Nothing is anything wrong with it.
0: Because he
4: has a lot of chicks. Oh,
3: yeah.
4: Monday, March 5th. May 5th. May 5th. I'm in a time vortex. Monday, May 5th. And welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show. Cinco de Marzo. The voice of young adult cancer. I'm your co-host, Matthew Zachary. A proud 18-year cancer survivor. Andy Goodman, my fabulous co-host, will be joining us back here next Monday. We're really excited to have her rejoining us. It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer? Under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world, one chemo-fusion at a time.
1: I'm Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, IR Radio Talk, or listening to the
4: archives on stupidcancershow.org. we got a great show tonight with a spotlight on MD Anderson Cancer Center, one of the premier global cancer centers serving over 115,000 patients annually. We will be speaking with Dr. Ernie Hawks, who is the VP of Cancer Prevention and Population Science, and Dr. Anna Franklin, who is the Assistant Professor for the Department of Pediatrics and also the Director of the AYA Program. And in our fabulous summer Spotlight, the one and only Kelly Herbert from Denver. Maureen Sweet is not able to join us tonight, but if you are so inclined, we will be live tweeting throughout the broadcast at Chemodex. If you have any questions, send your feedback anytime with the hashtag SCRadio. And with that, our self ingratiating applause. Hello, Matthew. How is March treating you? I don't know why I said that. <laughs> maybe it's I'm not used to it being after the OMG summit. Yes, maybe that's what it is. I mean, denial that it's over.
1: Is it still snowing?
4: Oh my God, literally. Thank God it's like not snowing anymore. Oh, I had all four seasons on the stupid cancer road trip. Yeah, well, I wanted to talk about that because this is your first show. In weeks. Oh, you've, yes. you've been out of the office since when? January? Uh, yes,
1: uh, actually it was April 7th I believe we started the trip uh, as we went up to Boston and then through the rest of the country ultimately to Las Vegas for the OMG 2014 Cancer Summit. Well Kenny,
4: what is the Super Cancer Road Trip? Uh,
1: we do 14 cities, 14 days and every day we stop at a cancer center or a clinic or treatment center And then in the evening, we host a Stupid Cancer meetup.
4: Now, this year, you started in Boston. We did. And then you hit up New York. Uh,
1: We did New York. New Jersey. Uh, Yeah, Well, yes. Uh, New York, New Jersey, D.C., Cleveland, Indianapolis, Chicago, St. Louis, Denver, Salt Lake City, San Francisco, SoCal, Phoenix, and then Vegas. So how was this year different than other years? This year was different because... Uh, to put it in perspective, two years ago when we did the trip, it was, uh, we had a following on Facebook of 15,000 people. Uh, last year, we had a much bigger following on Facebook, but this year, we actually crossed 150,000 likes while we were in Vegas. And it was the first year that people came out and they said, we met you or we found out about you through Facebook, and that's why we're here tonight. That's
4: amazing. Yes. Really so it, was, amazing.
1: it was a lot of new faces, a lot of people excited about stupid cancer coming to town. And uh, John and I did our best to carry the torch, and I think we did, and uh, we had a great time and, and a lot of memories made, and even more made at the OMG Cancer Summit.
4: Brian, uh, shout out to uh, Dodge for uh, posting on social. We were driving at Dodge, and uh, they did a great job raising awareness for the road trip, and the car was actually on stage, as usual, the entire time, and then it was kind of sad to watch you unwrap it. Yeah,
1: Yeah, that was an interesting experience. The unwrapping process to prep it for its future life on a... uh, Where do horses go when they stop racing? (laughs) Uh, On the farm. (laughs) They become blue. Yes, the Dodge Charger went to the farm. Oh, boy. So uh, it will live out its life. It's interesting because this year we got the car, and I think it had like 300 miles on it,
4: um, which is... Yeah, what was your total of this year?
1: Uh, Personally, I think I put about 6,000 miles on it, but for the trip... uh, we did 5,287 miles. That's incredible. And the difference is just, you know, the pre-stuff and getting to know the vehicle and all that nerdy stuff because goes along with plenty of
4: road trip. And if you missed the Stupid Cancer Road Trip, you can capture all the fabulousness on uh, Vimeo with the road trip recap, which is at uh, vimeo.com slash stupidcancer. Yes, and you can check out stupidcancerroadtrip.org, SCRT2014.org,
1: which is the hashtag. That's where all the pictures live. And... Uh, Thanks for following along, everybody.
4: We had a blast. I mean, it was really, really incredible this year. It was awesome. And uh, props to Relevance New York, our PR firm, for getting you lots of media, good interviews. And uh, we had John Thewer Cancer Center. We had uh, University of Colorado, Denver.
1: Cleveland. Cleveland. hospitals, Rainbow Babies. Chalk, Chalk Children. Chalk Children. In, uh, Southern California. So many places. We did the fertility spotlight in, in Denver, which was fun. Um, if you check out that video, we were kind of bloopy at that point, in the show, <laughs> talking about sperm washing and, <laughs> and creating embryos and
4: right, because it's not just a road trip mashup video. You had a webisode pretty much per three or four cities. Correct, It was amazing. My favorite was the uh, that you recreated um, the uh, Full House beginning. That's right. We did a uh, full, full car. <laughs>
1: um, so you can see John and I prancing through the field. Pretty nice.
4: Definitely check us out. So what was your favorite part this year?
1: Uh, getting to Vegas. Yeah. Uh, it's, <laughs> the end. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's always meeting new people and, and, you know, you hear people's stories and in some cities you get to spend more time with people than other cities, depending on how many people come out. Uh, it's really, the, interest, the really interesting parts are people's access to care. It's how they, almost like how they perceive their diagnosis, how they, how different cities treated differently. And uh, kind of the support that we are to them and, and, you know, why they got involved, how they found us, why they love us, if they love us,
4: um, just really the connections that are made. My favorite part of the road trip beyond the obvious humanity component is that you actually have a lot of downtime in that you're driving constantly. across barriers yeah, yeah. of nothingness. What do you do?
1: Um, well, that's, that was one of the, the threads on Facebook was what do we talk about uh, for the eight and nine hours sometimes that we drive? And it's amazing that after three years, John and I still have things to talk about. That's incredible. Um, it's it's everything you're
4: imagining and more. I yeah. mean, I, I just love the shots. from the, You went to the Continental Divide. Yes. Uh, you have all these incredible road shots from driving across Kansas with nothing yeah, nothing and nothing. Well, and this nothing. Is the trip.
1: I think the trip for us really begins when you get out of, like, the northeast to the D.C. area. Right. Uh, this year we went up to Cleveland, which was nice to see it in the springtime versus when we were in there for uh, – Critical mass in November. It was one degree. Yeah, it was one degree and gray. And apparently, it's very much like Seattle. They're like, "Oh, you came on the one sunny day (laughs) of the year." So that was great. Uh, But the trip really starts when you get to like the nothingness, and then the mountains appear, and then there's desert, and you could wake up and it'll be 85 degrees, and you get to your destination, and it's 30 degrees. But you drove through like a crazy blizzard too. We drove. We we drove through. When we went from St. Louis to Denver, we drove through rain. And then we drove through snow, and the whole time there were about 45, 50-mile-an-hour wind gusts to the point where we had to turn the wheel to the right to stay straight. Wow. Uh, and then we left Denver, went up north through Wyoming to Salt Lake City, and you get up to 7,000 elevation, and there was 30-mile-an-hour winds. 20 minutes later, it said caution, 40-mile-an-hour winds. 20 minutes later, it said caution, 50-mile-an-hour winds. And then there was just blowing snow. Oh. So it wasn't actually snowing. It was just blowing off the top of these mountains. Oh, my Because you're so high up. That's great. Um, so we definitely... There was an element of danger, but not too much danger, and uh, that's why I said it was nice to get to Vegas. And next year, yes, we're going to go through Texas and New Orleans
4: and keep it warmer. Yes,
1: no no, snow next year.
4: Speaking of next year, before we bring in our our, uh, survivor spotlight, we want to mention that um, for those of you that were not in Vegas uh, at the OMG uh, 2014 event, we made some major announcements about 2015. And you could learn about them through our mailing list and whatnot, but I'll just tell you right here, because we do have a lot of people listening to the show on Subscribership through iTunes and Blog Talk and iHeartRadio. Uh, for next year, the OMG Cancer Summit is being split into two coastal conferences called OMG East and OMG West. We're expecting two to 300 attendees. It'll be a day-and-a-half conference, and it will remain free of charge, unlike the national conference. We are replacing the national conference with a brand-new conference called CancerCon, which is going to be bringing doctors and nurses and social workers and medical and research into the conversation with the young adult cancer movement, patients, survivors, caregivers, advocates, and activists. It's going to be a conference unlike anything that has ever been done before. It is very exciting. We have lots of people talking about it. You can learn more and sign up on the initial mailing list at CancerCon.org. Yes? Yes. Good. I just tested it, and it worked. <laughs> we like when things work when I say things. Yes, yes. It All right, well, let's get this uh, party started here. Very excited to have an um, incredible story you're going to have to hear tonight. Kelly Herbert, diagnosed at 33 with metastatic papillary thyroid cancer, thyroidectomy, left neck dissection, 40 lymph nodes removed, radioactive iodine, uh, isolation from the world for 17 days. She's 35. Wife, mom, cancer survivor. She is driven. She's a business leader. She works at Apple. I can't ask for something more incredible. She is a phenomenal human being, and she is really what stupid cancer is all about. Please welcome Kelly Herbert on air. Hello.
0: Hi.
4: Welcome to your uh, groundbreaking first appearance on the Stupid Cancer Show.
0: A little excited, a little nervous.
4: Oh, come on, you're the most confident person I've ever met. You can't possibly be nervous.
0: I just talk a lot. It just comes across as confidence, but no seriously i I am both excited and honored to to just have a few minutes with you guys on air tonight. Thank you so much for having me.
1: How are you, Kelly? Long time to see
0: Hey, Kenny. Yeah, it's been what about eight days now?
4: Oh, uh, something like that <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, miss you guys already.
4: So I had the pleasure of meeting you before the summit because I was out in Denver for some reconnaissance that you're now aware of why I was out in Denver for reconnaissance. And um, uh, I got to hear your story for the first time firsthand. It was so driving and emotional and moving, not to take away from everyone else's story, but I was just so moved by the way you told it. And I'd love you to just kickstart your interview right now by talking us through what it was like and your husband and your family and everything
0: yeah so um so on november twenty first two thousand and twelve I was diagnosed with metastatic papillary thyroid cancer um, That was the day before my son turned one so sort of a what should have been a happy celebratory time um preparing for Thanksgiving dinner and my son's first birthday party, I was figuring out how to tell my family and friends that I had cancer, and um it was really uncharted territory for me um uh, as I, I hadn't known anyone under the age of, let's call it 58, that had ever had cancer. So as I was scared and confused and feeling really alone with my thoughts, um, I, I moved through the holidays and my son's first birthday uh, with a smile on my face and not wanting to make it about me. Um, but then at some point I had to face the grim reality that there was going to very quickly be surgery and treatments and um, I had to face my own mortality. While, while the good news is for papillary thyroid cancer is that most of the time uh, it's pretty slow growing and it's pretty treatable if caught early, the scary part for me was they, they knew that mine had already spread beyond the thyroid and to multiple lymph nodes. So I, I was now considered high risk and, and with not the same great prognosis that everyone else shared. Um, so I, I didn't know what to expect. And I um you know I, I spent a lot of time on Google which is a very scary place to be without context. Let me just tell everyone out there if you're newly diagnosed or or facing something that that you have no experience with, you may want to phone a friend um or log on to stupidcancer.org uh before googling because it, uh Google and being alone with your thoughts are not a healthy combination.
2: So <laughs> I spent a lot of
0: time yeah I did. I spent a lot of time in a, in a really scary place because, like I said, I didn't I didn't have anyone else like me um, that that had cancer um, that didn't have gray hair yet. And so I, um, you know, I, I found I did all the research. I'm, I'm a little Type A in my um, approach to to life, so I did a lot of research. I found uh, a great doctor and a great hospital to receive treatment at, and. Um, so I felt confident there, as confident as you can be when you're gonna have your neck sliced open nine inches. But um, but yeah, I, I prepared to move through surgery and treatment and when I was in my hospital stay uh for my initial surgery, I, I had treatment up at OHSU in Portland. Um, they've got a really neat AYA survivor program there and I was connected with um, Stupid Cancer and the First Defense Group and I got on an email list and one day in January, I got this email about this OMG Cancer Summit in Las Vegas, and it was all about young adult cancer survivors and people who were supposed to be just like me, and there were going to be workshops and plenaries and, you know, I, all, all these things that seemed really exciting and, and really called out to my heart. Um, however, I was sort of, you know, my neck had just been cut open. I wasn't even able to drive yet. Um, I had just gone back to work and I knew I had upcoming radiation treatments. And, and so I wasn't sure if it was something that I could emotionally commit to, but then I got a discount code and I thought, okay, well, it's going to be a little less expensive. (laughs) Yeah. So I thought, Hey, coupons are always good. Right. So I, so I went ahead and I signed up and I figured, you know what I, and at the time I was, I was living in Portland and I was, um, working in a job that required me to be in Las Vegas once a month anyway. And I could, I could plan when that time of the month was that, that I appeared in Las Vegas to check on my market. And so I said, well, you know what, I can spend the 80 bucks. That's what it was going to cost me with the coupon code. And I can book this work trip, and, you know, then the only other expense I'll have is the cost of the hotel and the cost of the extra days of rental car that I'll need. So really the trip is going to cost me, let's call it less than 150 bucks you know um i i was going to stay on points is what i was going to do so it really wasn't going to cost me much of anything and then i knew in the back of my mind hey i can back out because it's i'm really not i'm really not financially invested here so i i sort of approached april end of april last year teetering on okay i'm really excited to go this is something i'm going to do i want to get connected and i had been stalking the omg cancer summit facebook page i had been stalking the the stupid cancer forums, um, I, was, I was still too shy and still too nervous to, to put myself out there, not because I was embarrassed about cancer, but because I was just in a really emotionally raw place. And I didn't, I don't know, I thought maybe what if I get rejected? Um, I didn't understand how warm and welcoming this young adult cancer community is yet. So, so I stayed in the shadows and, and I vacillated between yes and no and yes and no all the way up until um, a couple of weeks before I said, you know, to my husband, you know, I'm just, I'm not going to go. I'm going to change my flights. I'm going to come back on time. I just, it, it's just not something I can do. I, I had just been released from isolation after 17 days of being away from human contact, from my own son, and, you know, two weeks later I was supposed to head off to Vegas for, you know, this trip, and, and I said, I just can't do it. I'm not ready yet. And my husband said, you know, I really urge you to reconsider. It may be good for you to be able to, to talk to someone else. That, that's like you. he said. And he, my husband, let me mention, has been a wonderful support, but he could only support to an extent. He could never understand the thoughts and feelings I had about my own mortality at a, at a young age or what treatment was going to be like or all of the question marks that surfaced after a diagnosis and hearing the words, you have cancer. So he really encouraged me to go, and I said, okay, I'm only going to go if I can still get a room at the Palms. I don't want to go and stay in this hotel down the road because um, I use the excuse of, well, I'm a female traveling alone and I don't want to, you know, leave the hotel late at night by myself, which I had done for work before. Wouldn't have really been a big deal, but I had this, this obstacle I was going to put up for the universe. And sure enough, I called the Palms and I said, hey, um, I know the room block has already passed, but could I still get this rate for this room? And someone got a manager and that manager said, oh, you're coming for the cancer conference? Absolutely. So I said, "Well, crap! I guess I'm going to Vegas," <laughs> and I was really, really nervous. You know, I just—I um, don't know. I, I wanted to be there. I was curious. I was excited. But the truth is, I had been through so much in the last few months. Um, I, I didn't—I didn't know what to expect, and and I really—I did. I feared that maybe I wouldn't. My story wouldn't be enough. You know, maybe my treatments wouldn't have been. Um, cruel enough to my body, maybe my story wouldn't have been as compelling. And I just thought, and then then you read these things where people are out getting busy living, and I didn't even know what that meant. And I thought, well, I can barely even stay awake. I don't even uh, that, Does that count as living? You know, like I just, I didn't know. And so due to my own thoughts and fears and insecurities, I, I almost walked away from one of the best experiences of my life. So I'll fast forward to, to getting there. Um, I Um I, I got there. Really early because I'd already been in town for business, and I checked into the Palms at about 10 a.m. on Thursday morning. This is last year, and I I get into the elevator and I look over and there's this guy wearing a a name tag and it you know it has the stupid cancer logo on it and uh, it says OMG Cancer Conference and or Cancer Summit and and I look over and I said oh are you here for the the summit and he He kind of looked up at me with with dazed eyes. I now know him as John Sabia, who is Kenny Kane's road trip partner. So the the dazed eyes totally make sense. And and he said, yes, I am. And I said, I am, too, and this is my first time. And he perked right up, and he looked at me, and he said, it will change your life. And right at that moment, the floor dinged, the, the doors opened, and I stepped out. And as they closed behind me, and he obviously couldn't hear me say this, I said out loud, I sure hope so. So I proceeded to my room and I set my bags down and, and got myself situated and um, and I went to walk around the casino and check things out, go to registration and within minutes of registering it, it was just like standing in the middle of a magnetic field. There were all of these positive energies and, and smiles and laughs and, and just people that I didn't know but instantly I had understood their stories and I had felt their pain and we had only met seconds before. It was it was a feeling that words could probably never describe. Um, and if, you, if you're a young adult cancer survivor, if you're a caregiver, a family member, then you probably have a little idea of what I'm talking about when you finally connect with that other person for the first time. Um, but, I started, but I started talking and connecting and sharing, and, and some of it was about our experiences and some of it was, was about life and who we were beyond cancer. And, but, but yet with this unspoken understanding of the struggles that we had all been through, and by the time I reached my room that evening, I called my husband um, just to check in and, you know, see how he and, he and my son were doing. And, and he said, before we hung up the phone, he said, you sound different. And I was like, oh, is it the smoke in the casino making my voice sound gravelly? And, uh, and he started laughing, and he said, no, you sound happy. And I thought, huh, um, okay. And he just said, I, I, just, I, haven't, I haven't heard you sound this happy in a long time. And, uh, you know, the truth is it had probably been five or so months, you know, since this whole quest to diagnose what, what that lump in my throat was. And, um, and so we hung up the phone and we, we checked in throughout the weekend. And when I got home on Sunday evening, my husband and I sat down and, and before he could even ask me how it was, I, I pulled out my swag bag and I showed him all my neat neat things that I got from all of our wonderful vendors and other nonprofit partners, and, and I told him all about my weekend. I must have dumped four days' worth on him in about two hours, and he just sat there smiling the whole time. And by the end of it, um, I had tears in my eyes, and you know, just, just from the sheer emotion of you know being on this OMG Cancer Summit high, and he hugged me and he said, I am so glad you went. I finally have my wife back. And it wow. was at that moment that, yeah, I, I'll never forget it. I I had tears coming from my eyes, and it was at that moment that I realized that because of the OMG Cancer Summit and all the, the caregivers, the survivors, the, the volunteers, um, because of the fact that you started this wonderful organization, Stupid Cancer, I had been made whole again, but in a way that was different and and meaningful in a whole different way um, than, than I ever was before. And I knew that my plight wasn't just to um, survive, that it was to get busy living. And I understood at that moment exactly what that meant. And it didn't mean that I was going to necessarily start the next great nonprofit organization. There's there's lots of those out there already. It didn't mean that I was necessarily going to develop the next great product for Cancer care I, I could contribute in other meaningful ways and and i had i hadn't quite figured that out yet and i don't I don't know that I completely still have I have some some really neat ideas of how i'll continue to leave my mark on this world but but I knew I had a purpose and and I knew I had a reason to live now, not just in spite of my cancer diagnosis
4: um, Kelly so um, let me ask, yeah I want to comment that uh, your husband, who is an extraordinary guy, I can't wait to meet him, um, but basically. He wasn't just happy that he got his wife back; he was happy that he was right because we're never right as husbands. And I just want to give him props for the <laughs> well, one the time
0: that he was. Right. That's probably true. I, I, you know, that that may we may I may have said he was right about a couple of other things. Like, um, I don't know when he said I looked nice in a dress when we were going out. I may have said, "Yeah, you're right." No, I don't know, but. <laughs> Or you haven't spent enough money shopping this weekend. Absolutely, you're right. You know, like so we've had those moments before, but but you're right. Um, you know, he he loves stupid cancer and the uh, the young adult cancer movement that that you guys have created as much as I do because. Um, I, and I do. I don't, I don't want to misrepresent the fact that because I, because I had a great experience at the conference, um, that that meant that the rest of my days were going to be peachy keen. I'm, I'm here to tell you that I've had complications since then. I've had hospital stays. I've had multiple trips back and forth to specialists. But, but it doesn't stop me and it doesn't slow me down because now instead of Googling, what I think may have happened. I typically pick up the phone and I call my doctor or I email him. But I have a whole network of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people out there. I can post on a site where there are tens of thousands of people that have access to Facebook and and other social media networks, and, and the answers are at my fingertips. And sometimes the answer is, I'm thinking about you. I'm sending you love. I'm sending you light. It doesn't necessarily have to be, well, I think it could be this medical thing that's wrong with you. I'm not looking for another diagnosis. I'm looking for a friend with understanding. And um, and that's what Stupid Cancer and the OMG Cancer Summit have provided me or had provided me. I'll tell you that um, that has evolved over uh, this past year. When I went back this year, I got to do it a little differently. I got to bring along a friend who was in a very similar situation that I was last year, and she got to come along with me and I got to play host and, and let her craft her own experiences but still be there as support and understanding for someone who was going through the exact same thoughts, emotions, and insecurities that I had exactly one year before. And uh, through through the, the partnerships that I've made and, and through the stories of experience, strength, and hope, I was actually able to complete my very first 5K at the OMG Cancer Summit this year that was hosted by the Ullman Cancer Fund. Um, amazing experience. I had. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, matter of fact, uh, a, a cancer survivor that I met, who's, um, you know, been a big part of the OMG Cancer Summit, Scott Slater, I, I saw on Facebook. We had connected last year in Vegas. We became friends on Facebook, and, you know, I was just sort of keeping track of his story, and I saw him training for the New York City Marathon, and and I thought, oh my gosh, if this guy could have cancer and go through all these awful things too, and here he is running a marathon, I certainly can can trust my body again. Um, because now that I had healed somewhat emotionally, I, I hadn't allowed myself to trust my body physically. But I thought, well, if he can do it, I can too. And I got clearance from my doctor, and I started training. And it was just my goal to 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 a finish, and b to to run the whole thing if I could. I didn't I didn't want to have to walk unless I really really needed to. And I and I completed both of those goals. And so this year, returning to the OMG Cancer Summit was was round two. It was my physical transformation and. Um, you know, I can't, I can't tell you how excited I am for CancerCon in Denver next year, not just because it'll only be like a 20-mile commute, <laughs> but, but also because I look forward to uh, continuing that transformation and continuing to give back to an organization that gave me my life back.
4: Well, Kelly, I've got to tell you, for someone who said that she was nervous and shy, you've been the opposite. So kudos for owning this segment. We have um, maybe a minute left or so, but I just wanted to point out that you are getting your MBA, which is extraordinary. I met you. You're very smart. You worked in business. I love the kismet that you work for Apple. I, my basic philosophy has always been, and, and this was not done with hubris, but if don't give people what they need, give them what they don't know they need. And mm-hmm. I think having you are an exemplary testimony to – the power of the young adult cancer movement and all of the organizations that comprise it, you you built up the courage to attend. It changed your life and now you're paying it forward. And it gave you permission to accept that this is your life and uh, a willingness to channel that back to help people like yourself and others like you. So in terms of just a a final thought here, um, what is your message to other young adults about how do you muster that courage? Not everyone may have the benefit of a partner or a spouse. What is it that you think means the most to somebody who might be shy or ashamed or afraid or a wallflower to take that next step?
0: Yeah, I would tell you that um that I believe that courage isn't the absence of fear, but it's but it's standing up and doing what you're most afraid of in spite of it. So uh, I, I I do tend to be a, a talkative person, and I and I can be very outgoing, but I can also be painfully shy, especially in areas where I don't have experience. And so, in some ways, I I become an introvert in those areas. And and I would tell you just to just to stand up in the in the face of that fear, and and take one small step at a time. So if what I would recommend, honestly, if someone's thinking about an east or west summit or if they're thinking about attending the cancer con in denver um, look for local meetups in a, in a city near them if there's not a meetup then certainly connect online in the forums um, like i said i stalked the forums and that gave me some some courage there but but being able to attend the the cancer meetups the the stupid cancer meetups has also been really transformational as well so maybe start local start small and build up to the bigger regional or national events
4: Well, I I can't thank you once again for coming on the show and sharing your story. I'm really, it it just does me such, I mean, on a personal note, I I didn't know what this organization would become seven and a half years ago, but what it has become as a result of organizations that partner with us and and survivors that have the ability to realize that this is how you live, uh, it's just so gratifying to know that we've helped in some small way and that you're going to be a really big part of our future. So Thank you so much for coming on the show. I will see you in Denver when I'm back out there this summer.
0: Yes, thank you. Can't wait.
4: Thanks, Kelly. Kelly Herbert, everyone. Bye, guys. All right, Kenny. Let's uh, brush up here through the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am.
1: And on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org. You're a one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. We have some meetups happening in Durham, North Carolina, Houston, Texas, Roseville, Minnesota, Phoenix, Arizona, and Arvada, Colorado.
4: Our what, Colorado?
1: Say it five times fast. Arvada, Colorado.
4: Arvada, Colorado. All right, everyone, we're launching a mobile health app this summer or possibly this fall or possibly next winter called InstaPeer, which is going to revolutionize cancer support forever. It is the first platform of its kind to do automatic anonymous peer matching for cancer patients and caregivers. Really exciting stuff. Go to Facebook.org, Facebook.com slash or InstaPeer.org to learn more, watch our videos, and check out what's next.
1: It's always a good time to stock up on your stupid cancer gear. We've got all new products and styles to choose from. Stay nice and cool through the summer in a stupid cancer tee. Matt, we've also got our brand new skateboard, and now you can give cancer the bird with an actual bird, our plushie mascot. Check it out at stupidcancerstore.org, stupidcancerstore.org. Be proud, wear stupid cancer. And that is your Stupid Cancer
3: News. All
4: right. Tonight's show about MD Anderson. Very excited to welcome to the show Dr. Ernest Hawke, VP of Cancer Prevention and Population Science, and Dr. Anna Franklin, who is the director of the AYA program there and the uh, assistant professor with the Department of Pediatrics and Patient Care. Really, really amazing stuff they've got going on there. Please welcome to the show Dr. Anna Franklin and Dr. Ernest Hawke. Hey, guys. Hello. Hi. Good evening. Hi there. Well, Again, I'm really excited. Every now and then we do a profile dedicating, dedicated to one specific NCI Comprehensive Cancer Center. You guys are on the list. I'm really excited. We had a lot of people coming to our events from Texas, and uh, everyone that I've met has nothing but good things to say about their experience over there. So it's really meaningful to me to have you guys on the show. Thanks again for joining us.
2: Absolutely. Looking forward to, to it. Happy to do so.
4: So let's start with, uh, with Dr. Hawk. May I call you Ernest, or how would you prefer Ernie. Ernie, it would be great. All right, Ernie from Twitter. I love it. <laughs> uh, you are uh, in charge of cancer prevention and population science at uh, MD Anderson Center. I think it would be great for you to lead us off with how um, your career got started, how you got into this, and what uh, amazing progress you've seen in the realm of this uh, particular uh, health care issue.
3: Thanks, Matthew. I'd be happy to do that. So uh, I'm a medical oncologist by background, which means that I uh, – I'm trained to treat cancer patients with chemotherapy and other medicines to try to cure them. Um, Early on in my career, I became somewhat frustrated by the number of options and the effectiveness of what was available at the time. Now, this was 25 years ago, so you can imagine things have changed greatly. But that got me thinking about the whole problem of cancer in our population and how we might do a better job. And I came to the conclusion that um, trying to intervene in risk factors and uh, promoting early detection were absolutely essential to success. And so I kind of diverted my career as a traditional medical oncologist toward prevention, early detection, screening, and uh, early intervention. And uh, I uh, left out of my fellowship and went to uh, the National Cancer Institute and became trained specifically in that area. And I'd worked at the NCI for about 15 years before coming to MD Anderson six years ago to help with the efforts here.
4: When I was uh, first getting started in advocacy, I was part of the Directors Consumer Liaison Group for the NCI and the CDC, and I first yes, learned about what, people, yeah, what, what, what does population science really mean? It's, a, it's kind of an academic word, but for the layperson, how does that translate down to actionable um, resources or, or policies?
3: Population science takes a look at um, the distribution of risk factors, the outcomes that occur not within an individual, from an individual perspective, say in a clinic or in a group of clinics like we have here at MD Anderson, but really look broadly across the entire population. What are the major contributors to cancer? How can we intervene in cancer on a population level as opposed to, again, specific individual interventions? And so it's just um, it's, uh, it's the individual patient experience taken up to the level of the population, looking broadly at major trends and uh, potential interventions that could apply not on an individual-by-individual basis, but broadly.
4: And uh, so let's go doc- uh, to Dr. Franklin. Anna, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us tonight. Anna, are you there? Oh, I think we lost her. She dropped from the show. We'll have to get her back. Okay, Ernie, you're back.
3: <laughs> okay, um, very good.
4: So, so uh, we are a, a young adult-focused organization. I, myself, was diagnosed with brain cancer, congenital brain cancer, medulloblastoma, but I was 21, which is kind of strange because uh, it, it's typically pediatric. Um, I, I, I always love to have a narrative around prevention because it, it's changed a lot. And there's now dialogue around whether we rename it, whether we call it risk reduction, whether we call it prevention. Um, you know, how is that uh, changed in your career, and, and what role does MD Anderson play in that conversation?
3: Yes, the the, the terminology around prevention has been controversial pretty much since I got in the field 20 years ago and perhaps even preceding that. Um, we, You know, um, just as we don't say... Um, uh, don't use the term cure, but we speak of treatments, so the same is true in some people's minds around prevention. We should talk more about risk reduction, which is really what we're what we're offering, particularly to individuals or even to populations, as opposed to true prevention, 100% um, effective in every instance. So that's part of the conundrum in the terminology. Uh, MD Anderson, although it's been treating cancer patients for 70 years and is very well known, for its, um, its efforts in that regard, about thirty years ago, we developed a uh, parallel focus uh, earlier at, at earlier stages of disease around the concept of prevention. Now back then, it was more a theory than a practice, but progressively, as we 've come to understand the process of cancer development not in every individual but broadly, um, you know what, risk for what what are the uh, risk risk factors um, in the environment, what are the risk factors in an individual's choices um, combined with the genetics that they're born with that lead to increased risk. Progressively we've become a little bit more aware of how we can take actions to thwart the development or retard the progression of the disease in individuals. And a number of academic programs were started here again over the last 20, 25 years. Um, So now we have four departments working in various aspects of uh, prevention from individual um, risk factors through in our Department of Epidemiology to behavioral interventions um, that can be taken um, to an area of investigation around clinical cancer prevention, which is more focused around uh, individual interventions applied in a clinical context and um, examining one of the major issues in, uh, in cancer treatment as well as prevention, and that is how do we get our um, known effective strategies out to the entire population that need them, addressing the issues of uh, disparities in both outcomes as well as risk factors.
4: Well, And, and that's amazing. And one of the interesting conversations we've been having now here in the young adult world is this issue of transition for pediatric cancer patients who the survival rates have gone up significantly in the last 40 years, but they're now facing secondary risks. Is there a narrative there in the prevention world of the risk reduction world about long-term cancer, long-term childhood cancer survivorship? Because you guys do treat a lot of children as well.
3: Absolutely. And, and, you know, that has been uh, an evolving uh, conversation that's occurred particularly over the last 25 years when we've been able to realize some of the uh, hoped for um, promise of uh, treatment of childhood cancers, so as as cancer survivors are living longer we 're realizing that some of the treatments that we have um, carry with them unanticipated in some regards and in other cases anticipated side effects um, that develop not emergently during treatment but longer over over uh, a period of decades and so the whole concept of prevention not only of the initial diagnosis, but now more so even in survivors, what well, can you do to decrease risks in that population, either by changing the initial therapeutic strategy or by uh, monitoring more carefully for, for uh, adverse outcomes associated with the initial therapy or even proactive preventive measures. All of that has come into being and is, uh, and is uh, part of what most centers will, uh, will offer. Um, so it's really a product of success that we've had to worry about um, all of these additional features that were not apparent in the initial generation of therapies. And, and the major approach has been to modify the initial treatments to try to decrease their short- and long-term toxicity, um, but progressively also we're finding um, some other things that can be done, as I say, both in monitoring as well as intervention, to try to get, mitigate long-term risk of the original cancer or second cancers or other side effects.
4: Right. We like to call that the consequence of cure and that everyone's a moving target at this point. But Anna is joining us now. We Sorry we we had uh, some tech difficulties, but welcome to the show, Anna. Thank you. Uh, We were just discussing some of the uh, progress being made because of progress in Mm -hmm. the sense of that that there is now improvement in pediatric survival rates, so a lot of them are becoming young adults. They're aging out into Correct. the young adult cancer population and facing other risks and, and, and are there ways to prevent that. But I wanted to get started with, you know, we're always very proud of the word progress and, and our community, the young adult cancer world, just eats that up, that there has been sustainable, uh, tangible uh, impact in, in recognizing this patient population as being underserved and disparate. Uh, you are the medical director of the Adolescent Young Adult Program at Indiana Center. I'd love you to just comment on how you got into that and your history in medicine.
2: Sure. So I uh, did a residency in both internal medicine and pediatrics and then had an interest in oncology um, and ended up in a pediatric oncology fellowship um, but kept an interest in adolescents and young adults. Um, And so when I finished my fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering and stayed on as faculty there for a couple of years, um, when I was looking for a long-term position, I really wanted a cancer center where I could really serve this young adult population. Um, And MD Anderson was one of those places because it has a pediatric program but also a robust medical oncology program. Um, And I think both in terms of numbers and the programs there, um, there really is great support for a young adult program.
4: So can you tell us about some of the uh, direct support programs that you have in MD Anderson? Because I understand there's a great program called Cancer 180.
2: Yes. So um, across the institution, there's a program called Anderson Network where there's a peer matching program um, both for patient survivors and their caregivers. Um, but one of our... Um, employees within that program, Marissa Meir, is a young adult cancer survivor herself and she recognized that really this group was different and needed a different kind of support. And so she created this Cancer 180 program where there's different social outings. Um, Every other year we have a uh, survivorship conference in Houston and then the alternate years we have it in an underserved area within Texas. And so there's also um, those peers can be connected um, and they can contact each other in whatever format they choose. So that's been well, a great...
4: And, and, right, and I just recently saw you at the Texas Adolescent and Young Adult Oncology Conference. It's a statewide yes. effort. And I I I think my quote to uh, the, the folks there at Methodist was that you're shaming other states. Can you talk mm-hmm. about how that TAYA... Uh, came about and Amy Anderson's role, and we'll get back to Ernie on on commenting on that.
2: Sure. So in 2010, uh, the first Texas AYA conference was in San Antonio and then um, was developed along with some folks from Livestrong and Dr. Karen Albert and and myself. Um, And as we had a second conference in San Antonio two years later, But then we realized uh, we could really branch out and reach a whole lot more people if we um, went to different parts of Texas because Texas is so large. So now we are having a rotation where we're going to go from Fort Worth to San Antonio to Texas. It was in San Antonio last year, and then uh, in February of next year, we'll be holding that at MD Anderson.
4: Well, count us in to help with that. And, uh, and Ernie, as far as, you know, you're um, in the world of cancer prevention and uh, population science, the young adult world has actually made some progress in that. I know that uh, you, you probably know that, that uh, one of the, the top cancers in young adults are melanoma and thyroid cancer and blood cancers, but uh, there has been progress in cervical and there has been progress in recognizing family history such that daughters and sons of older Americans with prostate, colorectal, breast uh, actually can get screened now. Is there um, some work that you're doing in that area?
3: Yes. Um, uh, you know, our institution has a very large footprint in research in all of these issues in prevention, as well as in treatment and basic science. Um, but uh, the other part that's pretty unique for our center, I think, is the focus on clinical delivery of services. So we also run a cancer prevention center here, as well as a number of survivorship programs where we uh, have the opportunity to focus more on risk factor assessment uh, and intervention. And it runs the gamut from um, from things like tobacco cessation, tobacco prevention, um, through the adoption and maintenance, helping patients to adopt and maintain healthy lifestyles in terms of nutrition, physical activity, making recommendations, setting up programs, trying to help them monitor their participation um, in in efforts such as that, um, as well as um, personalized risk assessment and, and definition things such as you've just outlined, family history and its contribution to a number of different cancers uh, and um, and other kind of evidence-based strategies to reduce risk, whether they come in the form of screening and early detection or uh, actual interventions. Um, And with uh, as you highlighted with... uh, with, with youth-oriented uh, cancers, many times there is a familial history that can suggest increased risk uh, so that someone can be aware of that, uh, first and foremost, and secondly, both they as well as their practitioners can be a little more attentive to issues of, uh, of appropriate screening and surveillance.
4: Uh, Anna, have you seen um, a difference with regard to this conversation finally happening around family history in young adults? or? Uh, Are there young adults coming that have children that you're making them aware of their potential children's risk?
2: Um, There's some. You know, in pediatrics, there's not a whole lot of of cancers that can be prevented, but we are seeing an increased incidence of melanoma. Um, But I think one of the common questions I get um, is really about the HPV vaccines and should these cancer survivors be vaccinated against HPV, Um, and I highly recommend it for all the patients, um, really because um, not just for the girls where it can prevent cervical cancer, but we're starting to see more and more uh, HPV-positive head and neck cancers. Um, And while they are more treatable than the classical head and neck cancers, Um, They can be very disfiguring, um, which is very important for young adults, um, their body image. Um, And certainly if we can prevent the cancer, um, even if it's a treatable cancer, it's great to serve, um, you know, prevent all that distress and uh, trauma from a cancer diagnosis and going through the treatment itself.
4: So then a question about, uh, Ernie, about your behavioral risk reduction. Obviously, smoking cessation has played a huge role over the last couple of years, but we're now starting to see lung cancer in non-smokers and in women. And, and uh, you know, is there any, and I, I would love to be proved wrong on this, I just don't know the answer, but there's a lot of discussion in the uh, onco-environmental world about you know, cell phones and toxins and parabens and all these crazy things that are going on. Uh, is there any environmental science in prevention, or are you guys involved in any of that?
3: um uh, well, we have We don't have as uh, mature programs in that domain as uh, we do in other areas of uh, of risk or therapeutics, to be frank. Um, so you know that's an area I think that's still emerging uh, in terms of the scientific evidence that underlie a lot of those uh, concerns, uh, whether they're real or 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 or, or not real. Um, And so we don't have dedicated programs um, oriented towards the environment in that way yet. I think uh, we're waiting for there to be more definitive uh, evidence associating any of those exposures with specific types of cancer or even with cancer broadly written across organs or sites or molecular etiologies. Um, so there's a lot of public concern and, and discussion around the topic, but not yet enough science to be actionable in most instances.
4: Uh, Dr. Franklin, you, I mean, you, you probably get a lot of young adults coming in that are confused and don't understand why, and, and we see a lot of people just that are becoming inspiratorial around this, but is there a, um, any way to, to loop them in about the science of this, and are they more participatory in wanting to understand uh, why they got sick or how this is working out for them as a generation?
2: Um, I mean, as Ernie said, you know, I think we're really still trying to understand why the incidence of, of cancers in young adults is increasing. And, you know, in the late 80s and early 90s, there was a blip because of HIV. Um, but once we developed effective treatments for HIV, um, some of those cancers incidences decreased again. Um, but you know, we are seeing melanomas in young, young kids and, and young adults, um, thyroid cancers, lymphomas. Um, and unfortunately we just don't know yet why that is. Um, Texas does have a cancer registry um, and I'm working with some folks uh, at the UT Health Science Center in San Antonio um, to sort of mine that data registry um, about young adults just in terms of the incidents and um, where, they're, where they live, where they're treated, um, to try and gather some of these clues as to what's causing this increasing incidence in young adults.
4: So speaking of melanoma, then, um, do you guys have a, a, a position on tanning legislation? I don't know if that's hit Texas yet.
3: Absolutely. Um, it, it definitely has. Um, I'm happy to say that this is one of the cases where um, our state has been on the progressive or leading edge as opposed to the trailing edge as we often find ourselves in Texas around public policy. Um, in, this, in this case, um, we became aware of the very strong association of uh, youth exposure to tanning beds uh, and subsequent development of melanoma at younger ages and in some cases with more aggressive disease. And um, this was brought to the attention of our melanoma scientists, our clinicians, as well as the folks here involved in government relations policy. And we, along with several other groups, uh, American Cancer Society, I believe Lance Armstrong Foundation, uh, the Dermatologic Professional Association here in Texas, actually our last legislative session pushed to raise the uh, age of access to 18-year-olds and above. Previously, it had been... I don't think we had a state restriction around two thousand and nine. We raised that to sixteen and a half. We saw an opportunity to uh, block any youth exposure um, and uh, indeed, that passed um, the uh, both the state as well as the house um, and uh, it became law last year. Um, so and I think we were the fifth such state. It's now um, either in place or, or coming in about 10 states, and we're in discussions with other states to try to share some of our experiences and hopefully promote similar policies at a state level across uh, a number of other states.
4: Anna, you want to comment on that?
2: Yes. um, We've actually been seeing quite a few um, patients with melanoma, and uh, there's a physician in our group, Dr. Hughes, who actually has... um, a um, dysplastic nevi screening clinic um, so uh, children um, and adolescents that have a worrisome lesion can come and see Dr. Hughes um, if he is also concerned it can be biopsied reviewed by our world class pathologists um, but hopefully it will just be um, a dysplastic nevi or some other unusual mole um, but we can um, also have education programs that we've developed um, from, with videos of um, adolescent uh, melanoma survivors talking with their peers about sun safety, um, how to use sunscreen, how to avoid sun exposure, and things like that. And um, that's being launched, I believe, next
3: month. And another process we're trying to do to to learn more about the early stages of uh, cancer development, applied specifically to melanoma, is to study the molecular signatures of not only advanced cancers, such as melanoma, but also the precancerous lesions that lead up to that disease. So we can try to identify what are the earliest aberrations that occur that set at least a permissive environment in that clone of cells. Um, So we've got a number of research initiatives. Um, Anytime we remove a a pre-invasive neoplastic lesion like that, a precancerous lesion, to try to understand the er very earliest steps so that hopefully... In the future, we can uh, apply molecular-targeted interventions not just to advance cancer patients but also uh, upstream of that in more of a preventive context.
4: I wanted to hit up one other interesting topic. I was reading today, apparently this is old news, but I just found out about it, so now it's new news because I said so, is that the uh, the issue of secondhand smoke has always been uh, obvious. And, I, Ernie, I follow you on Twitter, so I saw you commented recently that uh, more than half of U.S. children aged 3 to 19 are exposed to second-hand smoke. But Dana Farber apparently now says that there's third-hand smoke. So are you aware of this?
3: Yes, this has been debated in, uh, particularly among uh, kind of the tobacco uh, investigators at our institution as well as others for a number of years. What it what it means is essentially not a direct exposure to another person while they're smoking. The ter- third-hand smoke or or this notion of tertiary exposures is really where um, the uh, carcinogens from smoking tobacco become a part of the local environment. So they. Um, those uh, those carcinogens are purported to, you know, fall on horizontal surfaces, get into the drapery and the carpeting and whatever, and serve as a reservoir essentially of carcinogen exposure, um, particularly relevant to uh, to kids, but uh, possibly others. And so this is an earlier area of, of research. It's not yet um, well established, I would say, but um, those in the uh, carcinogenesis and tobacco. Um, research worlds are talking more and more about the possibility of this so-called uh, tertiary or, th- or, or third-hand exposure to, uh, to tobacco as another means of promoting um, uh, carcinogens across a variety of organs.
4: I, I just found that even like not, not that we're not scared enough these days. It was just terrifying. <laughs> I have 4 year like, I'm just crazy. Uh, and let me go back to you real quick. I wanted to end the segment on the sexy topic of clinical trials. Mm-hmm. Um, because that that is a really fascinating uh, topic, specifically on young adults, because our enrollment is very low. Mm-hmm. Um, have you? Uh, how do you guys handle that, and how is that uh, integrated into your best practices?
2: So MD Anderson actually has over a thousand clinical trials open, really at any one time. So when patients come in, we see what trials are uh, appropriate for them, and counsel the patients that this clinical trial is available for them. You know, another alternative would be the standard of care. Um, And we discuss the pros and cons of those different treatment approaches with the patient. And, you know, sometimes it's, you know, the thing that sells them is it's outpatient therapy versus inpatient therapy. Sometimes it's how long the therapy will last. Um, other times it may be um, side effects and risk factors for things like second cancers or um, other late effects like heart problems. So it's really um, presenting them with trials they are available with, but talking with them um, about the trial and their other options and finding out what is in their best interest and what would fit into their um, life and
4: support system the best. And Ernie, um, I assume, like what role do trials play, if at all any, in prevention or population science?
3: I think trials play a huge role across the spectrum from those at risk to those under active therapy, even to survivors. Um, So I'm really glad you raised this point as one of the closing points. We believe that participation in trials offers individuals access to the best available existing standard. Um, certainly in a Phase three context, as well as the opportunity to contribute to future knowledge. So it's just as relevant in prevention and uh, survivorship as it is to those under active therapy. So we, just as as Anna pointed out, we have a full spectrum of trials operative for uh, patients to consider across the spectrum. Really important part of what we do.
4: And a final question. Why MD Anderson Center? Let's start the commercial.
3: Um, I'll start. Um, so, in my opinion, um, you know, and I, I often referred people to this center back when I was at the National Cancer Center. I'd get calls from across the nation. What what MD Anderson offers is a concentration of expertise all in one place. And just as in any other area, uh, whether it's car repair or uh, accounting, practice does make better, if not perfect. And a place like this sees so many patients and is so entirely focused on cancer that it really provides an incredible opportunity from the people you meet at the front door to the nurses who really provide the bulk of care to the physicians who make recommendations. In MD Anderson, you have a center where everything is focused around cancer and trying to not only provide the best care today, but create better options for, for your kids tomorrow. And so that's what excites me about uh, being at a place like this and what- what I think distinguishes it from so many other centers that are out there. I'll turn it over to Anna, give her impression.
2: And I completely agree with that. And it is, you know, we've talked about this evening, it goes from, you know, the basic scientists to the translational researchers to the physicians caring for the patients. But so much of our I think progress has been in the realm of supportive care. So you know, we have infectious disease doctors that all they do is take care of immunosuppressed cancer patients, and so they really um, can help us figure out what's causing that fever. The nursing expertise um, and so many more fields that, where they just spend their time with cancer patients and have that uh, extra level um, of knowledge um, that really helps us take exceptional
4: care of our patients. And I think we all agree that quality of life is tantamount to quality of care, and you guys do that really exceptionally well. So I want to thank you both again for joining us. We've been talking with Anna Franklin, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at MD Anderson Cancer Center, Medical Director of the Adolescent and Young Adult Program, and Dr. Ernie Hawke, who's the VP and Division Head for Cancer Prevention and Population Science, also at MD Anderson Cancer Center. He tweets at MD. Ernest, Ernest Hawk, M.D. Anna, you on Twitter?
2: I'm not. I should All right, I'm not shaming you.
4: I'm <laughs> <I promise>.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
4: All right, well, thank you so much. Uh, please do count us in, stupid cancer. Anything we can do to help, augment, support, and uh, Taya is my new best friend. So count me in for anything.
3: Great. Thanks a lot, Matthew.
4: Thank you so much. Anna Franklin, Ernie Hawk, Wendy Anderson. All right, Kenny. All right, Matthew. A good show.
1: Yeah, sorry, I was uh... in
4: my part of that. Yeah, you were getting busy um, getting tired because you've been on the road for six weeks. <laughs> Something like that. Exactly. No, I mean, this is a really, it's really important that we, we raise awareness that, that people care about young adults. And this notion of traditional prevention is now getting retranslated to be relevant to our generation. And NDM is leading the way. So very cool, very cool stuff. And a fe- special thanks to Kelly Herbert, who really rocked the show. So without further ado, I present our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, my goo. <laughs> you got it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer.
1: Okay folks, that's our show. Our 306th broadcast. Uh-huh. With as much fun as we did some of you sick at stupid cancer.
4: You alive? <laughs> We'd like to thank our guests, Kelly Herbert, and Dr.s Anna Franklin and Ernie Hoff from MD Anderson Cancer Center. Next week's show, by request, caregiving for parents and children. We will be tackling The issue of caregiving for those affected by young enough cancer, especially children with sick parents. Join us as we delve into this very delicate issue with Rob Harris, founder of Rob Cares, and father-daughter team Mark and Maya Silver, the co-authors of My Parent Has Cancer and It Really
3: Sucks.
4: Survivor Spotlight on AYA Survivor, and peak performance coach Jay Platt, the founder of the No Matter What Foundation.
3: Subscribe to
4: our show anytime for free on iHeartRadio Talk, iTunes, Podcast, and Blog Talk Radio. Check us out anytime online at stupidcancer.org and stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck on behalf of any goodman, Kenny Kane, Maureen Sweet, myself, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here next week live at eight. Good night, folks. Good night, everybody.